Amen. Thank you so much, David, for leading us in that time of praise and singing. And now, dear friends, it is time for us to get into our study of God's Word. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to look at verse 15 today. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus, and we've been looking at the Ten Commandments and we've been taking each of these Ten Commandments week by week. And so today we arrive at the Eighth Commandment. And so we'll begin by reading God's Word together. We will pray and we'll get into our study. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. This is God's Word. You shall not steal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to mankind. We thank you for creating and preserving the holy scriptures for us. Lord, we thank you most of all for revealing the living word, Jesus Christ, to us. Lord, and we pray that through this study, we would get to know Jesus more, that we would be molded and shaped into his image more, that you would show us any way in which we might be conformed to the image of this world. Lord, we know there are many pressures around us. There are many ideas and ideologies, false beliefs, Lord, that are pressing in on the people of God. And so, Lord, it's important not only that we understand what you have said to your people, but why you have said it. And so, Lord, as we look at what this appears to be basic commandment, we pray you would reveal your heart to us and that we, having received your heart, would live it out faithfully in the world. We pray you would soften our hearts and minds now, prepare us to receive whatever the Spirit would say to the church today. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, let me start off by asking you all a couple of questions. And the first question is, have you ever been robbed? Have you ever been robbed? And go ahead and, and share that in the comment section. Have you ever been robbed in your life? And secondly, related to that, have you been robbed? If you have, try to share in one word, if not just a, a couple of words, a brief phrase, in one word or a phrase, how did getting robbed feel? So have you been robbed? And how did getting robbed feel? Now, I remember I was visiting, I was probably about 18 or 19 years old. I was still living up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I remember going to visit my grandparents. I was going to stay uh, with my grandpa Woody and my grandma Corrine in Napa, and I remember I pulled up my Volvo, which was made like a tank back then, by the way, and I pulled up and I parked right in front of their house. It didn't seem like a particularly dangerous place to live. After all, my grandparents were living there, so I 
parked it there and I stayed the night. We watched uh, John Wayne and Robert Mitchum movies all night. They loved that. And they had the TV trays and, you know, they would, they would always eat good. So they would get me like pastrami sandwiches that were like this high and they, they knew where to eat. And everyone at these restaurants, they knew their names. They would walk in. Hey, Woody, hey, Kareen, how you doing? You want the double? Oh yeah, double with cheese. So they would bring all this. We'd watch Robert Mitchum, John Wayne on our dinner tray. And so I spent the night, and I remember going out um, right uh, right off Trancus Avenue, and as I'm walking towards my car, I look down, and I see glass all over the ground. And then I look up, and sure enough, that's my window laying there on the ground in a thousand little pieces. So I, you know, initially I have that, that shock, okay, I've been robbed, and then what did they take? So I opened the car, and they took a number of things. Uh, the thing of most uh, monetary value was my stereo. They ripped out my stereo, stole my stereo, stole uh, some some other stuff. So I would say I I was practically inconvenienced. I was gosh, I was going to have to take my car in and get the glass replaced, and maybe they won't have that window in stock, and maybe I won't be without a car for a couple of days. So it was inconvenience. I was practically inconvenienced. But it was more than that, because there was a little item that nobody would have known was really worth much. It was probably like maybe a 20 30 maybe $40 item. It was a little item from the store called Sharper Image, if any of you remember that store. And it was, it was called a Leatherman, and it was kind of like a Swiss Army knife type thing, um, but, but a little bit different, um, uh, solid metal. But the reason that mattered is because my dad gave that to me. So I remember when I found out not only that I had been robbed and inconvenienced, but I had this, this deeper sense of violation uh, and even hurt and even anger because something that had sentimental value to me had been taken. And I would note that many people, when they get robbed, they feel the same thing. It is not just as though it is practically inconvenient. Many times when people get robbed, there is a deeper existential sense of violation that you, your space, something that you identify with, whether that's a, a Leatherman your dad gave you in your Volvo, or whether it was your house and your jewelry that your grandmother left you, or something like that, we have these relationships with the things in our lives so that it's not just mere inconvenience, but it feels personal, and it feels like a deep violation of something sacred. And so I want to talk a little bit about that today. I want to talk not only about how stealing is wrong at a practical and social level, which many people, not all, but many people recognize that that's wrong, but there's something deeper going on with stealing. And so I want to talk about this because I think it's very, very important for our culture for a number of reasons that I'll disclose. So let's go ahead and start off with the basic grammar. You'll remember just a few weeks back, I kind of gave everyone just really basic tools on, on how to interpret a text in the Bible. And number one, step one was the grammar, regardless of your feelings and your situation where you're trying to figure out, oh, does this Bible verse apply? You just start with the grammar. What does the text mean? What does the language mean? What are the words being used? What is the immediate context of that? And then step two was what's the Old Testament context more broadly? And then step three is what is the New Testament context because it can vary. 
So step one, let's look at the word. Now, the in the English, we have four words, you shall not steal. In Hebrew, it's only two words. It's the negative particle lo, followed by a conjugation of the verb ganav. Now, ganav is a specific Hebrew word, and it actually means to steal by stealth or deception. Ganav means to steal by stealth or deception. And it seems to be largely distinguished from another verb that sounds similar, and that verb is gazal. Gazal is a little more specific in, I think, about 90 plus percent of the context in which gazal is used. And gazal means to steal by force, by, you know, grabbing it, ripping it out of somebody's hand, uh, not robbing a house when everyone's gone, but robbing it while they're there and, you know, and hitting someone with the butt of their gun or something like that would be gazal. But the verb being used here is not gazal, it's ganav, and so it means to steal by stealth. Now, why does that matter? Well, I think it's important because obviously if the the what we might consider the lesser, the more minor version, if that is absolutely prohibited because that's the context in the Ten Commandments. These are apodictic laws. These are universal laws. You shall not steal. Then if the lesser is being ruled out, then the greater is as well. So notice the importance of the selection of words. If instead the word gazal had been used, somebody, the legalist out there uh, who wants to argue over words, they could say, well, technically, God just says I can't punch you in the face and then take your wallet. But if I take your wallet while you're not looking, the Bible is not against that. And again, people love to do this kind of thing with the Bible, kind of uh, wiggle their way out of what God is saying. So the selection of words is very important here. And it's the word to steal by stealth or deception. Um, there's actually an interesting passage in uh, the Old Testament that actually uses both of these uh, verbs and kind of highlights how they're being used. And it's the story in Genesis about Rachel um, stealing from her father Laban. If you'll remember, um, Jacob is has been um, manipulated by Laban. The deceiver gets deceived, and so he he flees. He doesn't even let his father-in-law know he's leaving. He just He's like, we got to go, because who knows what this guy's going to do. So he's fleeing, and he doesn't know, Jacob doesn't know, that his wife, Rachel, has stolen some of her father's household gods or, or his idols. And in that narrative, Laban, he finds out, and he runs, and he catches up to them, and he accuses Jacob of wrongdoing, and he's trying to find his idols, but she can't find it because Rachel hid them uh, under her, her dress, and she says, the way of women is with me. I'm on my period. You don't want to go looking for this thing right now. And he goes, you're right. I don't. Well, I guess I was wrong, and Jacob rebukes him, and off he goes. But in that narrative... It says that Rachel ganaved her father's idols, not, not gazal, ganav. She took by stealth. But then when Laban catches up, and that's the verb used throughout, and then when Laban catches up and he says, why did you just take my daughters away? And, and Jacob responds, because I was afraid you would gazal. I was afraid you would take them by force. So that's a cool little narrative that shows the difference of those two verbs. So the Bible is ruling out the lesser. Now, for practical matters, this would be, again, all nonviolent 
um, types of theft. So um, embezzlement, for example, fraud, all that is being ruled out. As a matter of fact, and I think this is important culturally to acknowledge, um, that this word is also used against kidnapping. The word steal here is used in Exodus 21, verse 16, against kidnapping. So again, when, when people suggest today that, oh, the Bible supports uh, American slavery and it's because people believe the Bible and, and Christians were enslaving, um, actually, no, that's wrong. The Bible outlawed kidnapping and used the word stealing to do it. So even here in the Ten Commandments, and it's more specific in the Exodus 21 passage I just mentioned, but that's prohibited as well. You cannot take anything or anyone. This includes persons. You cannot steal people. You cannot kidnap them. So the Bible, if people actually followed it, if people um, in North America at the time of the slavery actually were being biblical, then they wouldn't have kidnapped slaves from Africa and brought them here or anything else. So the, the problem is people weren't being biblical enough, and we need to be careful. We point that out to people because I know a lot of people think, oh, well, um, it's because they were being biblical. That's why there was kidnapping. No, friends, it's because they weren't. So it outlaws all forms, including even kidnapping. Um, now, let's talk about why the world... Why the world says that stealing is wrong? Why does the world say stealing is wrong? Um, essentially, all the world can really say is that stealing is not practical. In other words, divorced from God, a divorce from the Bible, divorced from a divine command such as thou shalt not steal, the best man can do is say it's not practical. And so what happened in the history of the world, because we know this was not a unique command to Israel on the surface, the context is unique because Israel's God is unique, but the commandment itself is not unique. Um, most of the ancient Near Eastern nations, uh, they all agreed that stealing, it, it's just not practical. You can't have a stable developing society if there's just rampant stealing. So people got together and whoever was in charge, so the ruling class, whether that was a lot or a few, that could vary, but the ruling class got together and they said, stealing is not practical. They said, I don't want to be stolen from. I don't want anyone to steal from me. So we need to make a law that's going to you know, punish people if they do. And hopefully by you know, legislating a punishment, people just won't do it. Even if they're not good people, even selfish people, you know, many times don't want to get their hands cut off or go to jail or pay back double or whatever the punishment happens to be. So people got together and whoever was in power or authority decided it's not practical. We can't grow and develop if we don't outlaw it. Now, if that's the best that society can do, well, what's the problem with that? Well, if people say, look, the thou shalt not steal is just a culturally relative command. It's just relative. Somebody made it up. And if somebody just made it up and it's only culturally relevant, then why can't it be culturally relevant to change it and say that stealing is not wrong? Again, I think there's a good argument to be made there. If you divorce even this simple command from the Bible, from the context of a belief in God, then it just becomes mere pragmatism. It's a culturally relative matter.
Now, the fact of the matter is, it seems that a growing number of people don't seem to think stealing is wrong, at least at a practical level. And even if somebody says, oh, I think stealing is wrong, but if you, you do it, obviously at some deep level, you feel it's right, or, or at least you're entitled to do it. And of course, this kind of ganab, nonviolent stealing with the advent of the internet is just absolutely exploding at an unprecedented rate. Um, let me read to you real quick just what the FBI has actually said about internet crime. So according to the FBI's 2019 internet crime statistics, they received 467,361 complaints in the year 2019. That works out to nearly 1,300 and 1,300 cyber thefts every single day to the tune of losses accumulating to $3.5 billion. So a half a million reported by the FBI, 3.5 billion, and for lesser dollar amount statistics show, uh, many people just don't bother reporting these. Not all of these things will necessarily get to the FBI. So we're seeing a new kind of form of thievery, and it's not gazal, it's not the violent kind, um, and it's probably the kind of thing, friends, where I think a why, why is stealing wrong, is becoming more and more important, because to a person who's engaging in cyber theft, they don't see the person they're hurting. And I, and I think there's moral and ethical implications behind that idea. If, if a person doesn't see who they're hurting, it's just digits on a screen, digits in this account from digits in this account, and you don't see how it actually affects somebody, unless you have a deeper reason why you shouldn't steal, I think we're going to see more and more theft. Not just because of technology, which that's certainly part of it, but also because there is a moral vacuum. People have less and less of a reason as to why they shouldn't steal if they can't visibly see that somebody is being hurt. So I believe that the more our culture rejects God, the more theft we are going to see occur. And I believe we are seeing that today. Now let's ask, since we've talked about the best the world can do and say stealing is wrong at a practical level, why does the Old Testament say stealing is wrong? Why does the Old Testament say stealing is wrong? Um, first of all, let me point out that the Bible affirms the concept of private property. The Bible affirms the concept of private property, though I would say this is developed more fully throughout the Bible, and yet I would point out, even with respect to just Exodus 20, verse 15, you can't have an Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment doesn't even make sense without the presupposition of private property. In other words, you can't actually steal if nobody owns anything. So the Bible actually affirms in this commandment that there is such a thing as mine and yours, private property. Now you might say, well, well, duh, Pastor Mike, I don't know why we need to spend time talking about this. Uh, well, friend, let me just remind you 
that this very notion of private property is up for debate right now. Not only at an individual level do some people look at what somebody else has and say, well, that should be mine, and, and therefore in my mind, in my heart, I'm delegitimizing why you have a right to that, so I'm going to take it. That happens at the individual level. But we're actually seeing wide-scale movements throughout the world where this is happening. So, for example, now when I use the word socialism, I know there's various forms. I know there's details, so let me be specific. I'm talking about Karl Marx's version of socialism. In Karl Marx's view of socialism, private property is evil. Private property is the root of all evil. Now follow him out on this. If private property is the root of all evil, then what's the gospel? Confiscate private property, whether that's an individual, uh, you know, the state, whatever you want to call it. But think about that. His, if his thesis is right, that private property is the root of all evil, then I guess the, the good news socially, his gospel, would be confiscating it will eliminate evil. And of course, that's what he preached and advocated. As a matter of fact, people had thought of this before. Um, if you've never read the classic English literature uh, entitled Utopia by Sir Thomas More of England, that's essentially what he visualizes. There's no private property. He looks. He essentially says all the evil you see is because people own things. And if you just dispossess everybody and everybody just shares, then all evil will be eradicated. Now, especially for those of you that... Um, it, maybe you don't have a Christian background, you, you don't know the Bible well, your, your view of the world and of economics comes from a variety of places. It comes from particular uh, humanistic schools of thought. It comes from uh, some of the elite universities. I can understand how you can come at this and, and be thinking a little different. And when you see a lot of Christians, evangelicals in America, for example, today, pushing back against socialism, you might think, ah, that's just Christians pushing their own personal agenda but it doesn't have any grounding in the Bible. Well, friend, I would actually point out that even though some of the details we can debate, this basic idea that private property is not only not evil, but even something validated and affirmed as good, is in the Bible. And, that, and that's why Christians, Bible-believing Christians, aren't just fine with theories that say private property is evil, we're going to take it all. Because you can't even have stealing if you don't have private property. It would render the Eighth Commandment a moot point. And of course, you could even argue that to do such a thing is stealing on a wide-scale level. So I believe this simple point, which many of us might have thought to ourselves, doesn't even need to be stated. Friend, pay attention, because it does need to be stated. The Bible affirms the basic concept of what we would call private property. Now, second, and this point qualifies for those of you that, oh, I don't know if I like that private property idea. That sounds worldly and selfish and sinful and fallen. Well, hang on, because this second point qualifies what I mean, what the Bible means by private property, and that is this. God is the giver of everything we have. God is the giver of everything we have. Let me state it another way. God is the owner of everything we have. God is the owner of everything we have. 
So while I would argue that the Bible says that private property is, is, is a good thing and, and it's right, and yes, we should care about that, and we shouldn't like people, individuals who steal our private property or, or groups of people that want to steal on a mass scale our private property, yes, friends, but we must qualify that as Christians. Because ultimately, whatever we have, the Bible says, is not ours. It's God's. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. James 1, 17 says, Every gift, every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. From the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. So we qualify this idea of private property with the idea that God is actually the ultimate owner. And so when Christians think of private property, we should be doing so through the lens of what the Bible calls stewardship. Stewardship. Everything you and I have is a matter of stewardship. Everything. Your house, your car, your money, your clothes, your gifts, your talents, your hopes and dreams, everything belongs to God. He's the owner of all of the earth. The world is his. And we believe there's a sacredness to private property. It's not just a good idea. It's not just a practical way of doing it. And oh, I think having private property is better than, than this way of doing it. No, we believe it's sacred. Because God is the creator of everything. He's the owner of everything. And so private property means God has given you something to be a steward of. God has given somebody else something. God has given us things uniquely that other people don't have. And so it's very important we as Christians qualify the idea of private property with the idea of the ownership of God. Now, this idea of God is the owner of everything, how does that impact this idea of stealing at a social and practical level? Listen to what Christopher J.H. Wright said. He's an Old Testament scholar. What he said on this very point. He says in his 1990 book, God's People, God's Land, quote, The thief robs his fellow Israelite not merely of some of his economic prosperity, but also of what is his as a blessing and gift from God and a part of his share in the inheritance of the people of Yahweh. That is, stealing carries not only financial liabilities, so practical, but theological and spiritual liabilities as well. So friends, do you see how apart from the divine command, thou shalt not, stealing can just be a mere culturally relevant practice that can be affirmed by some, denied by others, and both on the same pragmatic grounds, it works for us. It works for me. What the Bible does is it deepens this basic commandment and it brings it down to a spiritual level. And it begins to explain not only why is there more theft when people divorce themselves from God, but it also highlights why you and I can feel a real sense of violation 
when somebody robs us, when they steal from us, that it isn't just, oh gosh, I'm greatly inconvenienced, but we can feel violated at a deeper level. The third thing the Bible communicates is a close relationship between human beings and the things they have. The Bible communicates a close relationship, not an equivalence where we are not our property. I am not my house. I am not my car. And yet there is a close relationship between man and his land, his home, and the things that he has, including his money. There's a close relationship. Now, this is developed throughout the Old Testament, but it's seen right at the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 2. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, if you'll remember, where did God make man from? Where does man come from? He comes from the ground. And actually in the Hebrew language, you can even see the, the relationship of the words. The words for Adam or a person or human being is Adam. And the word for ground is Adama. It's the same word except with the, the H, the hey added onto the end. So Adam comes from Adama. So you see this linguistic relationship, which is meant to point out a conceptual relationship, namely that man is related to his environment, that he's related to his land, he's related to his home and the things they have. There is a relationship between people and the things they have. That's why so many people in America, if you notice this, and I think we're probably more like this than most countries on the face of the earth, but have you noticed how much Americans like to personalize and customize everything? Whether it's customizing a license plate, whether it's picking out clothes that are uniquely you or, or the way we decorate a house or what kind of car you drive and what kind of status is assigned to cars that people drive. I mean, think about how all of that in culture speaks of who you are. Well, the Bible says there's a reason for that because we were actually created in such a way that we're related to the things around us. But there's a problem. Sin has entered into the world. And what do you think sin has done to this relationship? What sin does is come in and it says, rather than your core identity being, I'm created in God's image, that who I am above all things is I'm a child of God, I'm created in the image of God, I'm the beloved of God. What happens, what sin comes in and it shoves out our identity in God. It shoves it out. And instead, other things take its place, including the things that we have, whether that's our house, whether that's our money, whether that's our cars, or whatever it might be. This is why, again, so, so often I remember when um, the housing market uh, crash years ago, I was working at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I remember, again, I was, you know, never a, a owner of a home at the time and I was just, you know, you know, renting. So I hadn't thought about this, but I remember all these people coming forward for prayer after service. And I remember there was just all these people, including just these little old ladies crying and, and it was because they were losing their houses. And I was asking, well, what do you have a place to go? They're like, oh yeah, I can, I, I can go here. I can go there. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that seems like the number one issue. But when I was asking questions, what I came to realize is they weren't crying because they didn't have a roof over their head. Every single person I talked to did have a place they could go. 
what they were crying over was there was a personal identity built into their house. To lose their house was to lose themselves. And I think that's because, again, God's made us to relate to our environment, to relate to the things we have. But what sin does is it comes in and says, you are as good as what you have. That your, your money, your house, whatever it is, it speaks of who you really are. And the Bible says that's not true. As important as these things are, and God wants to use them as matters of stewardship, yet we are not to be identified. Our worth and our value is not in your salary. It's not where you live. It's not what car you drive. It's not what kind of clothes you have. It is who you are in Christ. And insofar as we're pushing away from Christ and we're not trusting in him, we will see that that's a vacuum that's going to get filled. And we'll start to say, I'm only worth uh, what I own. I'm only worth what I possess. I'm only worth what uh, I can drive around and other people can see to show off and say, I'm this kind of person. So friends, we've got to be very careful that even though the Bible affirms that the things we have are important, if they have us, we are in a state of sin. We are not meant to be identified by these things. Now, what does the New Testament say? If the Old Testament affirms practically stealing is wrong, it's not good for a stable, developing society. If it also affirms that it's wrong because God affirms this idea of private property, and we understand that private property is qualified by the idea that God is ultimately the owner and we are but stewards of the things that we have. And we recognize that there's there, these things are a real extension of ourselves, but we got to resist the temptation, the sinful temptation to be identified with them. What more can the New Testament offer us? Well, let me share this. That in the gospel of Jesus Christ... The God who made everything and owns everything has actually given himself so that those who have robbed God of his glory can be forgiven. Think about this. The God who owns everything and he's been robbed of his glory through sin has come in the person of Jesus Christ to forgive all those who've robbed God of his glory, so that they might experience the glory and saving grace of God. You know, the fact of the matter is many of us could say, well, I've never been a thief. I've never stolen from people. And hopefully that's true. I think that's great. But actually the Bible says if you go down deeper, all of us have sinned and robbed God of his glory. Sin is robbing God of his glory. When we think about what we have as being ours and not God's, we are robbing God of his glory. This is something that God told Israel over and over again. In Malachi, for instance, he said, you've robbed God by withholding your tithes and your offerings. You've robbed God. You've managed to do it. When Jesus came in the Gospels, he gave various parables highlighting that we are not the owners of the things we have. Jesus told the parable of the talents. Do you remember that story? The master gives talents to each of his servants, and he says, go out and invest them, and when I come back, I'll see what my return is. And one of them decided, well, I'm just going to bury what I have. It's mine, so I'll just bury it. And he comes back and says, you are wicked. The talents you have are not yours. They are mine. 
Jesus told the parable of the wicked tenants. The vineyard is his, and the vineyard was Israel in this story. We could even say, ultimately, with regard to humanity, it's the earth and the fullness thereof. He, This is his vineyard. We are but the hired tenants. We are the stewards. And he's given us the things that you and I have. And he said, go and be fruitful. Multiply. Glorify me. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But how many of us can say we've always done that perfectly? I think if we're honest, we all know that in some ways at some times, though perhaps not a thief regarding other people, and yet in our hearts we've robbed God of his glory by believing what we have is ours to do with however we want apart from God and his glory. But friends, the fact is we are all stewards of what we have. We are accountable for what we have. The beauty is God wants us to enjoy what he's given us. There's no guilt for enjoying the fruit of one's labor. And yet if we start thinking of ourselves as being the sole owners and not recognize that we are stewards, then we begin robbing God of his glory. And so while not everyone is a thief, everyone at some time or another has robbed God of his glory. So what is Christ doing through the gospel? What is the Holy Spirit doing in the gospel? We know that the New Testament reaffirms repeatedly that stealing is wrong. We see Jesus reiterate this. So at the bare minimum, the New Testament reaffirms the old. It doesn't reject and say, oh, Christ has come, stealing's okay. It doesn't say that. No, it affirms stealing is still wrong. But more than that, while the law simply says, thou shalt not steal, the gospel says, give generously for the glory of God. The opposite of stealing is not just not stealing, it is giving generously. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer. Old Testament, eighth commandment. But look what the gospel does. But rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Look at what God is doing. God is not merely putting up the fence of morality and saying, don't steal, stealing's wrong. What God is doing through the gospel is he's changing hearts that once robbed God of his glory, and he's creating hearts that yearn to bring God glory. And what does that look like practically? Negatively, it looks like not stealing, and positively, it looks like giving generously. One of the signs we know God and we recognize the riches of Christ that God has given us is us giving generously of our time, our energy, our resources, our lives. This is something that Christians should be known for. I know that many Christians, whether right or wrong, fair or unfair, many Christians are known for being selfish and greedy. They claim to know the God of heaven whose riches he's lavished upon them, and yet they live like greedy misers. 
like Scrooge McDuck. Now, again, I don't know to what extent that is true in all these people's lives, but I do know the human heart. And I do know there's always a tendency to say, mine, it's mine, like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, my own, my precious. Friends, we cannot grab onto the things that we have, like Gollum, hoping that this is going to save us, that this is who we are, that this is going to fulfill us. But rather, because God has freely given to us his son Christ, we freely give in response. And that is a sign to the world that God is doing something new. Not only do we not steal, not only do we have an ultimate absolute foundation for which to say that to a relativizing world, but we also have a new ethic of stewardship and giving that glorifies God and I believe wins hearts. When non-believers see how loving, kind, and generous Christians are, I believe it melts their hearts. Because they know out in the world, people are selfish. And if they give, they only give when they're getting something back. But God's people give as an act of worship because we believe we are stewards of the King of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just thank you and praise you that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from you. Lord, I am thankful that you reminded us that we are stewards of everything that we have. Lord, I thank you that you have provided a basis for morality that is not subject to the changing winds of culture and politics, but is rather grounded on the eternal truth of God's word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would send us out as runners, as messengers who can run with this good news. That God is forgiving all those who have stolen and robbed. They've robbed God of his glory. And rather, he is giving to them the riches of Christ freely by grace through faith. And such that you actually change people's lives so that they live generously and the world around them can see. Lord, I pray you would just raise up a generation of generous, gracious givers who acknowledge everything they have is from you, who refuse to allow what they have to have them and identify them. And Lord, we pray that you would use us in this generation, use us in a generation of greed and envy that is permeating our culture and it is taking on strong form in our culture. Lord, help us to rise up as people who present another way to live and it looks like Jesus Christ himself. Lord, I ask for a blessing over your people now. I pray you aid us by your Holy Spirit to fulfill your commandments and live for your glory. I ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.